Good afternoon. Welcome to a impromptu session of the comics course. I am Professor Hamby, and I'm here as always with my TA Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello, Rowan. As always, we are proud to represent the Miskatonic University Remote Education Department as we teach this history of society and literature through graphic literature. This is a new feature for the class. Um, I have had a number of questions from students who wanted me to comment on topical things that don't fit into the normal lecture structure. So, since comics are a living thing, I thought that'd be fine to do. However, rather than sit here and read you news stories, I decided that what I would do is, in true comic reading tradition, only share you with you the things that piss me off. Because this is what comic geeks do. They get pissed off about things, and then they go on the internet, and they rant about them. And then I say, you're a bunch of feckin' idiots. And so this course session, uh, whenever I record it, is going to be called For Feck's Sake. Now, I don't know how often I'll record one of these, but only when people make me go, you're the kind of people that we possess in the world because your father kept his condoms in a hot glove box. And since I read Twitter, that means this will probably be a weekly feature. If only because I don't want to record it daily. So, in our first for effect's sake, we're going to talk about two topics. We're going to start with Substack, and then we're going to talk about Robin the Boy Wonder, version 2.0, well, 3.0. So, Substack. Everybody freaked out this week because several large creators announced that they are basically giving up working for major comic book companies like DC, in the case of James Tinney and the Fourth, and going to do stuff for this website that a lot of people had never heard of called Substack. They should have heard of it. It's been around for a while. Comics creators have been looking at it with a lot of interest for a while. I have to wonder how many behind-the-scenes conversations were going on about this. Um... But the thing is, what people are actually upset about has nothing to do with Substack. It has to do with them leaving DC and Marvel and with an abandonment of the traditional structure. Now, there are some interesting issues that are going to happen here. You know, there is a very old paradigm that's going away, and it has a dichotomy. One, big talent works for really the big two, Marvel and DC, plus other side projects, and then everyone else works in the shadows. And that's gone. That dichotomy of you got the big creators and the small creators and everyone else is kind of scavenging for those people that don't just buy superhero comics, and that's just gone. Dead. History. The fact that it's taken this long for the process to really start in earnest in comics is absolutely mind-shattering. And for and it reflects something about for a community that prides itself on creativity and fantasy and science fiction so much, we get really stuck in our ways really easily. Now, there are some interesting aspects to this that are going to be bad things. One of them is discoverability. Now, this is not new. Text publishers, you know, people who write books of all text, no pictures in them, these things exist. Hopefully you people know they exist and have read them occasionally. People who write textual books 
have dealt with this for years. For many, many years now, people have gone, you know what? Yes, I can, I can endlessly slam my head against the wall and try to get published by random Penguin, uh, Macmillan, whoever the big imprints are, and pray that they're looking to fill the, their schedule with the kind of stuff I write and get endlessly rejected, or I can just build my own community, direct publish, and yeah, I may not sell as many units, but I can, I can make a living off it with a little bit of luck and a whole lot of work. And that's where comic books are going. And one of the things, of course, that terrifies some entities about it, the entities that want the traditional scheme, is what we saw in the regular book market is that as this happened, it fragmented. As everybody could become an author, it didn't become tiny little vanity publishers and then big distributor printed publishers. We began to get a whole giant spectrum. Does that sound familiar? Because... If you replace Vanity Press with independent comics and the big six with the big two, it's the exact same thing. And so now in books, what we see is you have everything from that one guy who sells five copies of his book on Amazon or Smashwords to the person who does their thing um, on Tapas to the people pushing Kindle Unlimited and Kindle eBooks. And you have everything from people selling millions of copies to people selling five and every piece of the spectrum in between. And that is going to happen to comics. It just is. Nothing people do, no amount of whining, is going to prevent this from happening. And the, the rats of this, the rats who are leaving the sinking ship, so to speak, and this is not a derogative, rats are incredible survivors. The rats are big established names who don't need Marvel and DC anymore. You know, Stefan Sajic, who does things like Achilles, Shield Maiden, Sunstone, Death Vigil, and, bef and while creating some of these, individual, these independent brands of his own, his creator-owned brands, he was doing stuff like Harleen for DC, Aquaman, Justice League, Witchblade. He said about a year to two years ago, I forget when, he put out an announcement on Twitter. He would not work for the comic companies anymore. He was only going to focus on his own creator, own stuff. Now, was he going to miss working on these properties he grew up reading, these superheroes he loved? Sure, but it didn't make sense creatively or financially to do it anymore. Now, you rearrange it slightly, and that is pretty close to the announcements that came out from creators this week. So, why? You know, I, I'm hearing a bunch of people whine about this on Twitter, and you're feckin' idges. You're pissing me off. <clears throat> so let's do a little reality check here. Here's how comics creators get paid. Let's break it down. First, they get paid by rates. Now, before I get into the rates too much, I'm going to tell you, it is hard to know the exact math because people aren't real forthcoming with this kind of stuff. They don't like to say how much they're making. The people that aren't making much don't want to admit how little they're making because they're trying to get more on new contracts, so they don't want to cut... Uh, uh, under undercut themselves, and the people who are making a lot don't want to be seen as grandstanding. So I'm going to tell you a story that goes back to the golden age of comics. Joe Simon, we know these numbers from Joe Simon. Uh, he was one of the creators of Captain America. He was one of the very first entities who worked for Funnies Incorporated on some of the first superhero comics with Submariner and the Human Torch. And he said that when he was working for Funnies Incorporated and doing Submariner and Human Torch, 
he was getting paid $7 a page from Funnies. Now, Martin Goodman, uh, who was running Timely Comics, which eventually became Marvel Comics, went to him and said, how much are you making? You're making seven bucks an hour? I'll pay you 12 bucks an hour. Not an hour, sorry, per page. 12 bucks a page. Now, keep in mind, Martin Goodman was paying Funnies, who had been paying Joe Simon up till then. So while Joe was getting $7, however much Martin Goodman was paying had to be more than 12 probably a good bit more than 12 probably like 14 15 16 So Joe was getting less than half of what the company employing him was getting for really being nothing more than a middleman. Now, what is the point of this? The point isn't that Martin Goodman is part of the problem. He's passed away for some years now. Uh, the point isn't $7 and $12 price points. The point is, middlemen cost a lot of money. They just do. And when you work with the big companies, it's all middlemen. It, it's not turtles all the way down. It's not dead hookers all the way down. It's middlemen. And we don't know how much you know creators are getting paid these days. I, I looked around online, including some forums where people talk a little more freely, and the prices I found were all over the place. Writers I saw anywhere from $25 a page to $250 a page. Maybe some people like Brian Michael Bendis with exclusive contracts might be getting a bit more than that, but not much. So, I mean, you have to imagine an established writer for somebody like DC or Marvel is probably making, if these are representative of the extremes, somewhere around $100, $120 a page writing. Now, let's put that in context. Ed Brubaker. Ed Brubaker is one of the best-known writers in comics today. He's not only written great comics, but they've been adapted into well-established material. Uh, one of the most famous things he's done is the Winter Soldier storyline from when he relaunched Captain America in 2005. Uh, now, the Winter Soldier storyline, of course, got slightly altered and made into a movie called Captain America and the Winter Soldier. Now, if you take the 13 issues that make up that storyline, because number 10 was an off thing and something else, uh, but 1 through 9 and then 11, 12, 13, 14, it comes out to about 300 pages. If you do the math, he made somewhere around between forty dollars and $50,000 off that for a book that got took more than a year to publish. Now, he could probably write multiple books, but... The point is, let's look at the rate of it and the value of the intellectual property. Because this isn't ultimately about can they make a living. Although in many places in the United States in this day and age, $45,000 a year is not much of a living. It is rough on that. And yes, I know many, many people are making way less than that. That's a large social problem that we're not tackling here in the comics course. We're just talking about the pay rates of the comics creators. Um... Now let's look at the script for Captain America and the Winter Soldier. We don't know if it was bought per se by Disney. They may have had a staff writer doing it. The director may have worked on it. It may have been part of their package. But we do know from the Writers Guild of America uh, that tracks these things that scripts sold to Hollywood Studios average about $110,000. So we're talking about probably more than twice what Ed Brubaker got paid for two-plus years of Captain America. And I'll bet it didn't take two years to hammer out that script, not two constant years of work. 
Now, the movie made around $800 million in its initial video sales and release. And that doesn't include merchandising and later streaming rights and all that other stuff. Chris Evans made $3.2 million. Now, yes, he's a big draw for the theaters. You know, it, it's probably justifiable based on the return value. But let's look at other people who were just middlemen. Disney CEO Bob Eager, 2014. He got a $22.8 million bonus that year. That's the year Winter Soldier came out in the theaters. Now, Disney had four big films that year. Winter Soldier was not the poorest grossing of the four. Uh, it was right in the middle. And even if films only made up of a third of the reason for the bonus, and I'm pretty sure they were more than a third of the reason, that still, we could extremely conservatively estimate a bonus north of a million dollars that Bob Eager got for the success of Captain America and the Winter Soldier. And there are other executives who I'm sure got those bonuses. Now, there are probably people like directors and line producers who deserve that, but somebody like Bob Eager, who is functionally a middleman in this process, is rubber stamping stuff. It's not like making a sequel to Captain America, which was insanely successful, is a dangerous decision as an executive to make. In fact, not making that decision is, would be about as dumb as using those old condoms in the glove box that produce the people talking the stupid feck online. Feckin' idiots. So Bob Eager gets a million plus dollars for being a middleman. And what does Ed Brubaker get? Well, he got to be on screen, which we assume he got paid for, because I think he had a speaking line, which would have guaranteed him a Screen Actors Guild minimum for a more than $2 million film of $1,030, assuming the shooting only took a day. And he may have gotten a little bonus and an invitation to the premiere. DC does that standard. DC will give you $5,000 an invitation to the premiere and $5,000 so that you can basically, you know, buy some new clothes and pay for your travel to and from and stuff. And that's it for, for creating this content. But why is that all they get? Why is all they get a gift? Because they don't own it. And that comes into our next issues of royalties. Now, in the comics world, we really don't have a concept of these bonuses like we talked about for Bob Eager. What we have is, bo is royalties, the idea that you create something and you make money on it over time. Now, the thing is, when you work for the comic companies, you are creating stuff where you don't have a say in it. The company owns it. Unless you're a big name like a Neil Gaiman or a James Robinson who can negotiate special contractual terms. James Robinson has terms from his Starman, not the original, but his Starman, that they can't even put him in a background panel of a comic without his express permission. Um, and he controls it. But that is rare. That is super rare. And if I went to DC right now and I wrote a comic for them and I created a new character... I would have no control over it. But, depending on your contract, you may get certain kinds of royalties. Now, the one royalties you'll probably automatically get is reprints of your comics. The comic is highly successful. They do multiple printings. You may pick up some royalties. It gets put together in a collected edition. You may get some royalties. Um, depending on your contract, if you create a whole new character and it gets reused in new books, you may get a royalty. Depends on what kind of contract you were able to negotiate. But here are various problems with that. One, what constitutes reuse in a collection? Depending on your contract, 
if only part of a work is used, you may not get credit for it. Uh, you may get, not get the accounting you think you deserve. If you're Ed Brubaker and you created the Winter Soldier, did you create that character? Or are you just reusing Bucky, which already existed? What is your royalty agreement on that? And I, I'm not really calling out Ed Brubaker here. I'm just using it as an easy-to-reference example of a theoretical. Uh, I don't know Ed Brubaker. I don't know the circumstances of his contracts. He seems like a smart guy. So I hope he's able to hold Marvel to every penny he deserves. Um... And then, let's talk about merchant... Oh, one last thing about royalties. And, Rowan, mm -hmm. I know you have anger issues. Uh -huh. You punched the mic last time. <laughs> you kind of threw the headphones off this time. But you got to rein it in a little bit here. I got enough anger for both of us, for feck's sake. Okay. Um, now, usually, when you have a royalty agreement, you do have a right to audit the company. How many people do this? How many creators have the uh, resources to audit? They're going to hire a, a forensic accountant to go do this? No, they're not. This doesn't happen in the real world, which of course means it's that much easier for the companies to be creative in their accounting of the royalties. And then we can get to merchandising. Merchandising gets insane. You know, how much money has Ed Brubaker gotten for Winter Soldier merchandising? You know, every time, you know, some stripper used Winter Soldier pasties on her nipples or something. I'll bet he's gotten zero. Zero. And that's a shame because he deserves it. Audit that. Okay. So, it's all financial. And this is going to happen anyway. And the money is screwed up. And that's why the creators are doing this. Look look at what a quagmire that is. Now compare that to something like the Spawn movie. Now, the Spawn movie didn't do that well. I'm talking about the original one for Todd McFarlane. But he owned everything outright. I'll bet he made way more off that than he would have if Marvel had owned Spawn and made 20 times as much. So the math is just there. And even when you're owed stuff by the math, you're likely to get screwed out of it because the accountant's jobs at a company like Disney and Warner Brothers is to keep their money in-house not fairly allocated. It's that simple. Just like it's not a lawyer's job to represent truth and justice, it's a lawyer's job to represent their clients. A creator's job is to create, and unfortunately that leads them to getting screwed a lot. And owning your own stuff is a good way to not get screwed if you start creating things that are of value. So, we're going to leave that behind and now get into our next For Feck's Sake topic. This is our second and last one of the day, and it involves a creation by Marv Wolfman. Now, way back in this ancient days of the world, when cavemen still walked around with four-color books in their hands, we had no Robin in the world. Dick Grayson, the original Robin, had grown up. <clears throat> he had uh, been an older version of Robin, Teen Titans. He is a college student. Uh, even when he showed up as Robin, it was in a different costume. Robin, Robin was gone. Batman was on his own. So DC Comics made a new Robin, and they said, <clears throat> what we're going to do is something interactive, and we're going to give people a phone number to call, and they have to pay like 25 cents or something, and they get to vote on whether or not Joker kills the new Robin. Because, <laughs> of course, everyone's going to vote to keep him alive. It was no. a landslide, and bitch was dead. That's what happens when you bring anything out for public voting. People are going to be trolls. I, and it wasn't trolls. The character was annoying. 
I called and voted for him to die. Because <laughs> he was annoying. He was horrible. Nobody liked this character. Now, clearly, the writer's intention was that long-term, they were going to kind of redeem him and build him up. But when you put annoying character that everybody hates right there and has good reason to hate, of course they're going to want to get rid of him, right? Yeah. This was a horribly, poorly planned thing. Now, now today, knowing group behavior of the internet the way we do, people would have the reaction the way you did, Rowan. Oh, this is not going to work. Back then was a more innocent time, apparently. So anyway, he died. And then we went for a while with no Robin again. And then we eventually got a new Robin named Tim Drake. Now, for people like me who think of Tim Drake as the new Robin, I want this to sink into your head. Created by Marv Wolfman in 1989. 32 years ago. The new Robin has been published for 32 years. So, despite that, I don't think his character is super well established. Uh, he's been published a lot, he's been used a lot, but not with the kind of high-profile stuff that builds up iconic elements in a character. So, the internet lost its feckin' mind this week because in Urban, Batman Urban Legends number 6, which features a bunch of Batman-adjacent characters, uh, the third part of an ongoing story written by Megan Fitzmartin uh, was published, and in it, at the end, basically, Tim Drake says that he'll go out on a date with another guy. What's the big deal? So everybody lost their mind that Robin is gay, or, and Robin's had girlfriends more likely bi. And, or maybe not even bi, maybe bi-romantic. Maybe he's just trying to figure stuff out and goes, I kind of like this guy. Maybe let's just see how it leads. I mean, it's really vague and up in the air. And teenagers are going to question these things about themselves, you know? Mm -hmm. And maybe he is bi-romantic, but not bisexual. Maybe he's bisexual. I, I mean, really, the only LGBTQ element is, at the very end, him saying, sure, I'll go out on a date with you. That's it. And the internet lost its feckin' mind. Now, let me go ahead and back something up for you. If this had been Dick Grayson, I would understand. Dick Grayson's been around for like 80 plus years, and he is the Captain Kirk of DC Comics. He is a practiced, dedicated heterosexual. Mm -hmm. If it's feminine and bipedal, and I'm not sure it needs to be bipedal, it's not that he comes up like Leisure Suit Larry, like, hey, baby. No, he just stands there and they come up to him. He just, I mean, and he's, I think he's been with more species than Hall Jordan. Despite not leaving Earth. It's like the alien chicks <laughs> land on Earth and check alien Tinder and he has like a five-star review rating and they're like, this is the Earth guy to hook up with. I didn't need that image in my head. Well, it's there now. But this is Tim Drake, who is been a teenager his entire run um frankly you know he's not a twink let's be clear he's not a twink he's not that kind of representation but i mean you don't have to be no and frankly he always kind of struck me as he could be by anyway i mean when when i read this and uh, the initial things i said saw said robin by or robin gay and i was like huh are they gonna try to do that with dick grayson and then they said is tim drake and i was like oh well that totally makes sense 
you know, I mean, he's always had this kind of very middle-of-the-road sexuality, this kind of vague ambivalence, even when he went out with female characters. Um, it, it So... I mean, it, and again, not like Dick Grayson. I mean, blonde, brunette, redhead, wheelchair, um, alien species that absorbs photonic energy. It's all the same to him. I mean, he just looks at all of it and goes phasers on stun. Um, Tim Drake has, is that introverted. It, and this is really, I guess, what I'm trying to get to. The idea that Tim Drake would explore an idea like maybe I am by maybe I am potentially... I mean, that's very much in his nature. He is an introvert. He is an intellectual. He's very questioning. He, it, it, The idea that he would find a personal aspect about himself, something to explore and investigate, seems very natural to me. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel like this is a retcon for the character. Wait, were people calling it a retcon? Somebody probably was. There was one guy on Twitter. Oh, no. For feck's sake. This is what he said. Mm -hmm. He said... He's complaining about social justice warriors and all this crap. And he says, what's next? I mean, they do this kind of crap to Star Trek and Wonder Woman and now Batman. What's next? Now, okay, he called out Wonder Woman and Star Trek. I actually stopped and initially assumed that this was a satirical statement. So I went back and looked at his history, and it's not. He's a comic skater type person. Oh, no. Now, first of all, if we're going to talk about gay characters in Wonder Woman, I'm going to refer you back to a class session. You can find it on iTunes and Google Play and all that stuff on Captivate.fm called Wonder Woman is Queer as Fuck. And yes. And she's always been. And she's always been. So, clueless nitwit number one. Now, next up, Star Trek. If you... you no, go, go. Star Trek has always been socially progressive. We're talking about a TV show that during the Cold War put on the bridge of the Enterprise two Jewish actors, a Russian, a Japanese man, and a black woman on the bridge. And, and got shut out of the South. I mean, they killed the broadcasts on the episode where the black woman kissed the white man. Um, th this, and, and by the way, Nobody really was surprised in the Star Trek fandom when George Takei came out as gay. When he was shirtless and doing his Errol Flynn routine when they had the virus aboard the Enterprise. I'm just saying, those of us that have ever been to San Francisco knew what was going on. <laughs> just saying. Um, so, yeah, comics have a history of being socially progressive. This is fine. For feck's sake, all of you calm down. And spend more time reading and less time being feckin' stupid. I also get annoyed whenever stuff like LGBTQ, whatever, topics come up. It's automatically labeled Justice Warrior and not just people. Yeah, and I, I don't like the label Social Justice Warrior. I know some people take it with pride, and maybe it describes them. It does not describe me, because as I've said on the podcast before, I am not engaged with issues of diversity because of social justice. I'm not trying to do this for other people. Now, I do think it would be nice if every kid could grow up reading graphic literature, seeing themselves mirrored in it the way I do. That's not seeking social justice. That is called empathy. That's just fucking empathy, people. Mm -hmm. and, and the other side of it for me is I'm greedy. 
because I want to read every kind of story possible. And you need different people for that. And yes, there are social justice warriors out there. They love the title. They probably live up to it. And I really don't care one bit. My standard is just empathy. Yeah. All right. So for feck's sake, we're putting this to bed. And we'll see you in a few more days from now when we talk about Isekai manga. And stop stalking Robin on his dates. Leave him alone. Really? Although, if he forgets some and you, you know, have some prophylactics, feel free to pass him over. I mean, he is that kind of nerdy guy. He might feel uncomfortable buying them. But not the ones out of your glove box, guys. Come on. Stop that. We're out. <laughs>